0: Blog the Radio.
1: Africa, Africa is the center Africa. of the world. Africa Africa. The of the world. Latitude zero, longitude zero. Africa. Planned Africa. by the creator. Cisantribus was the first man found Africa. on the Earth. in the past, it would be difficult to relate to the future. We know that within the structure of the music, there should be a message, and the message should be
2: Like this. We are scheduled to speak to our brother Kimberly from the Congo. He'll be calling in. And brother, um, to my brother from the Congo, Brother Kimberly, if you are on the line, please hit one so we can recognize your number. Please just hit one on your phone and we'll recognize your last phone number. Okay, we see you. So we have a brother from Congo, which is going to be uh, the first item of our discussion. Following what's going on in the Congo, we're going to talk about our theme today, which is a state of being. That's right, a state of being. We discuss various issues, and following the segment of the state of being, we will talk a little bit about Venezuela, the recent rally, but more about an update on Venezuela with Sister Shirley Pate. She'll be joining us later. So that's our lineup for the day. But, like always, before we get started, you talk about the Congo and bring in our brother, uh, Kimberly. We're going to introduce our political analysts and panelists for the day. We first would like to bring in Brother Anthony. Welcome to Africa on the Move.
3: Revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and the fellow panelists, and our special guests, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African. People's Revolutionary Party, G.C., Objectivist Pan-Africanism, The Total Liberation and Unification of Africa Under Scientific Socialism. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you, Brother Andrew. Father Brother Afton, we bringing Brother Jabari. Brother Jabari, welcome to Africa on
4: Thank you for having me. This is Brother Jabari, resident researcher. Looking forward to another session
2: program. Peace to listen to the audience and my fellow panelists. Fine well, Brother Jabari. We
4: now bring in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Haki, uh, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamaf from Shoki, am with African Awareness. <clears throat> and I'm all about institution building. And let me tell you, Brother Africa, institution building is extremely, extremely important. And one of the things recently we had this incident in New Zealand. With this mad individual, you know, killed all these people inside of a mosque. It's very interesting that one of the things that this killer espoused, he cons- espoused the views of a conservative black woman in America. So one of the things that's very very unfortunate is that a lot of times these conservative blacks don't understand that the position that they take or the role that they play, actually kind of productive to the interests of African people without even realizing that. Uh, one of the things is that they very much are apologists for white supremacy. Uh, and the question in terms of democracy, there's a belief among many of these so called black conservatives that democracy actually exists in America. When even the Founding Fathers understand that democracy could never exist in America because, in order to have democracy, you have to have uh, uh, the uh, participation and control of the masses of people. And the Founding Fathers were ethically opposed to the idea in terms of the mass of people having any influence over public policy. Uh, also, I just wonder if they understand that when they talk about democracy in its truest sense, when the Founding Fathers talk about democracy, they were talking about to abuse. Now they're talking about abusing. They're talking about abusing, but uh, those who are not the landowners, uh, those who are not rich and white and male. So clearly, uh, they got these kind of individuals who you you know you know receiving all the landlight. You know get it, le- land light. Uh, they're getting resu- landlight. They're receiving of visibility. You know on these national programs that are shown not just in America but throughout the world. And so what we have to do in the kind of the, the influences of these these jigaboos. We have to have a vast organization. We need institutions to combat this reality. Uh, Keeping in mind that, of course, in creating these institutions that that ensure a longevity in society, it doesn't mean that you're going to get any praise for that. But what it does mean is that you're standing up for your people, you're standing up for humanity. And to that extent, we talk about the longevity of African people. So it's important that we have these institutions in place because that is our lifeline. Because all those institutions, what's coming at us, uh, it's is, 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 is not going to be fun, so I encourage people to get busy with both institutions. And thanks for having me, brother Africa.
2: Thank you, panelists. And right now, we're going to talk about the Congo, uh, a place that is in the central part of Africa is very important to the future of Africa, African people, and our liberation. But it's very seldom to talk about. So recently, this weekend we was able to attend. Uh, a demonstration support of Venezuela and was able to connect with our brother, our brother in He's a representative of the um, Free the Congo people Free the Congo movement. Um and he can come and talk to you about the state of the Congo, what's going on in the Congo and give us an update. And one of the things we try to do is give you primary sources. So we are very honored and pleased to have a brother, a brother Kimberly here. And brother Kimberly, I hope I pronounce it correctly. If not, you correct us. Introduce yourself to a listening audience and talk a little bit about the organization that you rep- represent, the Friends of the Congo.
5: Thank you, Mbrado. my brother. Well, my name is uh, Kambale Musavuli. Uh, I am the spokesperson for the Friends of the Congo. Uh, an organization uh, based in Washington, D.C., but has branches uh, across the United States and also inside of the Congo, uh, working with youth leaders who are fighting for change. You know, the way I make a comparison of their work on the ground is almost as the freedom riders uh, in the United States who are going across the United States, mobilizing and organizing. You know, others that I can compare them to is a sneak how a young Africans on this continent called uh, North America were mobilizing uh, the African youth in the belly of the beast uh, to demand you know, sovereignty, human dignity, and many other issues that they faced at the time. So that's what we are doing in the Congo, supporting young people who want to determine their affairs in the heart of Africa. Of one, understanding the ideals of Patrice Lumumba what he fought for, and how the liberation of the Congo is not going to be just for the Congolese, for, but for the African continent and African peoples around the world.
2: Okay, Brother Kimberly, give us the present state of the Congo. What, what's going on on the ground? What's happening to your brothers and sisters in the Congo?
5: The Congolese people are, at the current time, to determine their affairs. From a very basic perspective, someone pull up the news online, uh, they will be able to see that there was elections in the Congo. It's just, it was really a masquerade of an election. But the repercussion of the electoral period in uh, the past uh, two months is that people are realizing that they engage themselves in the electoral process well. Whoever was declared the winner of the presidential election Did not reflect the aspiration of the people So people are getting out in the streets Uh, For the past two days uh, In different parts of the the country uh, People have risen up Uh, They they are rising because the uh, results for the Senate uh, Did not have anyone elected That represented the people And I'm saying that from a general perspective that 90% of the people elected in the senatorial um, election are not people that the Congolese chose. So they are in the streets. They're actually going to some of the officials' homes, uh, showing their faces, uh, sometimes taking matters into their own hands to send a message to those uh, who are declared winners. Um, But why is that even Important to even discuss the election What has been going on for the past two decades In the Congo In 1996 uh, There was a war that started in the Congo And this war as of now Has not completely ended In the Congo But this war took the life of Over six million Congolese And half of the deaths uh, During that This conflict has been Children under the age of five Now we're talking about over 3 million people dead who were under the age of 5. But why were they dying? I mean, what was this conflict about? It was really to get control of Congo's resources. Uh, one of the particular minerals to look at in the Congo at that time, in '96, when the war started, it was a mineral called Coltan, a mineral that's found in virtually every electronic device, your cell phone, your laptop, DVD player, VCR, or microwave. Uh, virtually every electronic device will have a piece of coltan in it. And Congo holds anywhere from 64 to 80 percent of the world reserve of coltan in the world. And today, the most important mineral in the Congo is no longer coltan, but it's cobalt. But what is cobalt used for? It's used for your electric cars. Uh, so people who are buying this Toyota Prius, getting this hybrid car. The hybrid battery of a Toyota Prius has 1.2 kilograms of cobalt in it. Um, people are trying to get these Tesla vehicles. You know, people are talking about the so-called green energy. Let's move away from uh, fossil fuel. But everyone who's advocating for that, what they don't realize is because we are divesting from fossil fuel, because we need now these electric cars, uh, these hybrid vehicles, now you have to go to Congo. Why? Congo holds half, Congo produces half of the world's cobalt today. So you, you can't just ignore the Congo. And that's how the West has looked at the Congo, as a place where they get their resources, they could care less what is happening to the people, and conflict is happening to create leadership or people who will give access to these resources while Congolese people are suffering. But this is not uh, the first time that it happened in history. You know, um, for those of us who look at history as as a whole, we remember that in 1885, Western powers sat down in Berlin to carve up Africa. And as they sat down in 1885, most people do not realize that the United States was at the Berlin Conference. They didn't get a territory But what they did was they supported a guy named King Leopold II in getting uh, control of the land called the Congo today. And this land is the size of Western Europe. It's a massive country on the African continent, right in the center of Africa. But why did the United States support King Leopold? Because back then, the United States needed the Congo's resources. What did they need? They needed the rubber uh, because there was this boom in the car industry In the t- the bicycle you know, to, m- to get the tires of the bicycles And tires of the cars So they say you know what We'll support you As long as we in the United States We get access to this rubber Back then 10 to 15 million Congolese people Died under the rule of King Leopold but It took Africans in America to stop it So you had a guy named uh, William Shepard, you know, he was a, you know, they called him African-American Presbyterian missionary, but I called him, he was an African, right in Alabama, who left the United States, took a boat, went all the way to the Congo, saw what they were doing to Congolese, and took pictures, and was advocating for Congolese. That's over a 100 years ago. His wife, Lucy Gant Shepard, an African woman, born in the United States of slavery, but Became a a freed woman after the Emancipation Declaration. But you know, she was the first person to translate a Congolese language into English, translate the Chiluba into English. And you have also, I mean, there are names and names of people I can cite, Um, Maria Fearing and others. But these people understood. The fact that they were freed In the United States And it did not make sense That at that time The United States was supporting King Leopold Who was causing the death Of millions of Africans And through their advocacy And others around the world On November 15, 1885 Congo was taken away from Leopold By the exploitation demand The world went into World War I And World War II What people don't know they needed Congo resources to fight those wars. They were getting access uh, during World War One uh, to uh, Congo's, cobal- uh, Congo's uh, copper and diamonds to fund the war. In uh, the, during World War Two, the bomb that was used to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan came from Congo through the Belgian hands. So they always used that. Uh, Congo as a place for resources, but Congolese stood up in this process. They have been fighting in the 1800s as well as in the 40s and 50s Bringing us to the story of Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically elected leader of the Congo When he stopped mobilizing in the late 50s He was more from the perspective that you no, know, we needed to be free uh, the Belgians uh, We could see them as brothers or sisters Let's have equality and freedom. That was a very liberal way of looking out how Congo should be free. But he had an opportunity to travel to Ghana um, through the help of um, Bababu Babu, who helped in financing his trip uh, to Ghana. But when Patrice Lumumba arrived in Ghana in 1958 for the Fifth Pan African, African Congress, met with Kwame Nkrumah. Fra- uh, Francois was there And many other African youth leaders Who were all fighting in their home countries To liberate He understood what Pan-Africanism was He understood why It wasn't just a question of liberation Of the Congo that It was a question of the liberation Of the entire African continent And as he went back to Congo His mission was to make sure That not only we become Independent from the Belgian uh, Powers but also to make sure that the sovereignty of our land and resources was in the hands of the people. He made sure to say it. He said he wanted Congo's resources to benefit the Congolese people. That did not sit well with a U.S. president named Dwight Eisenhower. He said, who is this young 35-year-old man in the heart of Africa telling me that I can't have cobalt from the Congo to fight USSR, which is now Russia today? So within weeks of Patrice Lumumba winning one, not the elections and becoming the Prime Minister of the Congo, the first democratically elected Prime Minister of the Congo, within weeks of him becoming that, he was deposed, and within months he was assassinated with the help of the CIA, Belgians, and some local elites who also participated in that. But the assassination of Lumumba in 1961, January 17, 1961, was really... Feeling the hope of Africa But not only that Sending a message To any other African leaders That Western powers Particularly the United States Was coming To stop any revolution happening Why was I saying it was a message? It's the way he was killed Tristan Mumba Was shot dead with two of his comrades As he was shot dead He was buried A few days after he was buried Wherever they hid the body They went back where they buried the body, took it out of the ground, chopped off his body in pieces, and put the pieces of his body inside of acid to make sure that the remaining of his uh, body is nowhere to be discovered. Not only that, the Congolese cannot go anywhere that could say this is where he was buried as a place of pilgrimage or, or inspiration. So they wanted to make sure to erase his body. And that imagery, that story, reminds me of how our African brothers uh, and sisters here in uh, North America, in this land called the United States, were treated. How they will catch uh, a so-called enslaved African, hang them on the tree, and have a picnic around looking at the dead bodies or leaving that body around. I was uh, a, a couple of months ago, I came back in the U.S. and I visited North Carolina and I went to one of the cotton plantations, which was one of the uh, breaking plantations in North Carolina. When I was being told of the story about how they will, uh, the, the, the hanging tree, where it was, um, how they would leave the body there for everyone to see, to send a message to any enslaved Africans on the plantation, this is what they did to Patrice Lumumba, that any other person who was fighting for the liberation of Africa at the time could hear the story of Patrice Lumumba, how they killed him, and that would put fear in them to continue the struggle in case that this could happen to them. And we saw after the assassination of Lumumba, how many African leaders were either assassinated or either faced a coup d'etat. But the spirit of the Congolese did not die. They continued to fight while the CIA imposed a dictator on them for 32 years. They continued to fight. As when I first started, I mentioned how, unfortunately, in 1996, a war started and through the past two decades, Congolese, has con- they have Continued to fight, especially Young Congolese, why am I saying That? Congolese population Is under the age of 18 And the majority of the Congolese People are Congolese women And the, these, the women and the Youth have been at the forefront Of the struggle, whereby With the election that Took place while it was rigged This election would not have taken Place if people did not Rise up, why? Because the former president refused to organize elections after two presidential terms He was supposed to be out of power in 2016 He organized the presidential le- elections two years later In December of 2018, that's when the rigged election was created but what, It only happened because of the mobilization of young Congolese who took it to the streets Many were imprisoned, many were killed Rosi Chimanga is one of the young leaders who was mobilizing people uh, using spaces of uh, churches, actually. You, know, you, uh, subject to, uh, you, you have to also know about Congo through liberation theology. There have been uh, priests who have provided space of organizing to young activists. And Rosi Chimanga was using spaces of churches to organize protests and rallies. And one of the protests that he was part of organizing, while they were ready to hit, he saw the officers coming to stop them. He was protecting the people who were ready uh, to hit the street. Unfortunately, inside of the church, the Congolese police shot at him and killed him inside of the church. But he's not the only one. There is the young lady, Therese. Kapangala, another young Congolese woman who was an activist, and Lunkulula, another one in Goma. So there are so many young Congolese today who have given their li- who gave their lives for the election to take place. While the process went on with the election, uh, the results still did not reflect the aspiration of the people. Unfortunately, the former president still has power, even though officially he's not the president. Uh, he was able to rig the result by appointing um, someone that he can control as a president. He controls the Senate of the country. He controls uh, the parliament of the country. He still controls uh, the military. And this is why, for the past week, young Congolese across the country uh, have been now rising up uh, again to make sure that we can achieve that. But as they continue to fight, uh, the biggest or the most important message uh, they have to the world, they have to our allies here in the belly of the beast to know that they're not sitting idly by. They're fighting to change uh, their conditions and they hope they can connect with people in this country because the United States as a government has a lot of influence what's happening there They support the dictators They train this military Providing them military equipment And they're using Africa The so-called African command The United States has a plan Of recognizing uh, The African continent Through its military But those things cannot continue To happen without the American People rising up against it Saying Africa does not need U.S. military Africans need solidarity, ordinary people. So what's happening in Venezuela? I can't compare it to what's happening in the Congo and many African countries. That it's important for those who are in the belly of the beast in the United States to challenge U.S. foreign policy that's causing havoc on the African continent and delaying the liberation of African peoples.
2: You know, my brother, you made a statement earlier as it relates to these elections, that many people are, uh, are receiving positions who are not even Congolese. Could you talk to us a little bit more about who are these people getting these positions to run the country and how does that um, conflict with the people on the ground govern, governing the country? What is the, what is the makeup of the government? Uh, who really runs and back up the government? What forces, what parties, et cetera?
5: So, I will I will try to go back to explaining actually the, the entire electoral process so that people really get the context of what unfolded. Uh, Joseph okay. Kabila, uh, who, who who is uh, the so-called son of Laurent Kabila, who came into power in 1997, Joseph Kabila took power in 2001. He took power after the assassination of Laurent Kabila. So from 2001. Up until December 2018 he's been the president of the Congo uh, In 2001 when he took power He was 29 years old Not only that He was a former rebel He had no political history And what I always challenge Many journalists who write on the Congo uh, Challenge them on the narrative That they, they put Because they will write an article That say that Joseph Kabila Ascended to power in 2001 I never say that I always say that he took power in a coup d'état Because the constitution of the Congo does not say That when the president dies The son of the president becomes president That's not what he says What he says actually is The head of the senate Becomes the president when the president is incapacitated So the fact that he took power in 2001 There had to be a force imposing him on the people And that force was the United States the United States recognized that election. The same thing that they're trying to do in Venezuela by recognizing Guaido, that's what they did with uh, Josef Kabila because the people did not recognize him. But because he had the military power, because the United States was backing him, it became the status quo that he was the president. He was actually pushed to organize elections. Because there was a constitution So the first election was organized in 2006 At the end of the 2006 election He was declared the winner The people did not trust the results They went out in the street organized But they still were met by police forces By the military Many people died The status quo again And the United States again Recognized the fraudulent election of 2006 In 2011 Which was five years later the second election, under his rule, was organized. Same thing happened. He was declared the winner. Congolese hit the streets. And I remember in, 2000, in December of 2011, I was in the United States. We mobilized the Congolese community across the U.S. They actually traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. And I remember vividly, 200 Congolese at the corner of 15 and G., in front of the White House. They did not have a permit to do a protest, and they decided to do a sit-in, 200 of them, right? While they were doing the sit-in, the police came. They were trying to talk to some of the leaders of the community, telling them to get off the street or they will be arrested. Everyone who was there said no. And we sat there for an hour. No one got arrested. And this is still a story in the Congolese community because they, we found it very weird and suspicious that when this police is so down on arresting people, 200 people can take over the corner of the White House and not get arrested. And some have speculated that they are so sure there was an order asking the police to stand down and not arrest anybody who's blocking the street for one hour. Because till today, we have no explanation on how that happened. And this was under the Obama administration, the so-called first African president. I always challenge people when they say that, because what he did in the Congo, people need to know, Obama was never a friend of Congo or never a friend of Africa. But after the 2011 election, while Congolese were protesting inside and outside of the, uh, the country, Many Western nations were waiting for the U.S. position on the election. It was so rigged. I mean, Kabila won in some areas by over 90%. So no one recognized the result, and the U.S. did not say anything. But on February 15, 2012, the U.S. ambassador to the Congo in in Kinshasa held a press conference where he he stated that the United States recognized Kabila as the president of the Congo For the next five years As soon as the U.S. made the All the Western nations start coming up with a statement too Saying that we recognize Kabila and so on Which was totally against The will of the Congolese people And again I'll go back to Venezuela That's the same thing When the U.S. starts speaking about Military intervention or recognizing Gado, You start seeing a few European nations Following suit Showing again how the U.S. is able to Influence uh, the world sometimes against the interests of people of a nation. But Congolese didn't uh, sit down. They were clear that after the second election in 2016, Kabila was going to leave because the constitution says that the president of Congo can only have two terms. But right after the, the second election, there were a few things that Kabila stopped trying. He was trying to change the constitution of the country. To remove presidential term, That did not work He tried to hold a referendum On the constitution That did not work But all through that time Since 2011 Congolese were protesting Organizing, mobilizing And then in 2016 He simply did not organize the election How did he get away with it? The way he organized it was He tried to change the law because people were very attentive to the process, he was not able to do it. So he appointed new judges to the constitutional court, and then he sent a question for the court to interpret what should happen if the elections are not organized. And his question was simply to the court was, if on December 19, 2016, the election has not been organized, What happened to the current president? Of course, the court said, well, the current president continues to be president until there are elections. That started mass protests in the country. So people continue to pressure and pressure the Congolese government. Some international countries start engaging. The AU has not really been very helpful in that process. That's why I continue to insist That if the Congolese people Did not rise up After his defraction of his power By two years We wouldn't even have elections In 2018 In December of 2018 But how am I saying That he's still in power He was able to look at The Congolese opposition um, Some of the opposition leaders Are unfortunately looking at their belly They're trying to eat They're now worrying about the interests of the people So Kabila was able to cut And this is a speculation uh, That's been shared But it's becoming much more factual When we see the facts on the ground It's been said that Kabila did cut a deal With one of the opposition leaders Who was not popular in the country And by telling him That he's going to make sure That he becomes president but he has to guarantee his safety, and the reason why Kabila is worrying about his safety and his wealth is that he has amassed of twenty billion dollars worth of money he has about eighty five companies into mining uh, license of uh, like the president has mines all across the country, and he has created a corrupt network of international and local actors who are getting wealth out of the Congo. Some of whom are Ben Gopler, who's an Israeli businessman who has helped him a lot. Um, he has hired an Israeli PR firm to change his image here. And this PR firm actually helped connect Kabila to the Trump administration. Also, last year they organized an event where they brought Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor, of new york who, who is also a personal lawyer to Donald Trump, they brought investors, um, some of whom are interested in cobalt. Uh, if you look at the news this in the beginning of January, Eric Prince, who is the brother of uh, Betty Davos, the um, head of the Department of education but only not only that Eric Prince is also the former CEO of uh, Blackwater But what he's doing Actually is that he's Raising hundreds of millions of dollars To invest in a fund That will get access to cobalt Right and I can continue To show those connections about how Kabila uses we have to get Close to the Trump administration so that Trump Administration cannot do much against Him and also getting Opposition leaders to weaken The rise up of the people so but after he made that deal, one on four days on the December election, they took about two uh, weeks to release the results. Now, but they also took out of the electoral roll 1.2 million voters. That's a lot of people, 1.2 million voters. That reminded me a bit of the scam they do to the black community in Florida uh, anytime they I election. After they've done that They announced the winner of the election Who was not popular Which is really impossible For him to win His name is Felix Shisekedi After he was declared the winner Of the election Up until today The only thing In terms of facts From the elections that we have From the electoral commission Is just percentage They've told us that he has won by 30 some percent, and the difference between him and the runner up is 600,000 votes. But they refuse to disclose electoral results so people can analyze where these votes came from. Up until that, three months later, we still don't have that result. What have we found out after that? That the head of the electoral commission has been given license for a gold mine during that process. What else we found out after that? Felix Shitekedi, who's the winner, has asked the Congolese people to thank Kabila for the peaceful transfer of power in the Congo. That is a leader that we should look up to. Keep in mind that Kabila has killed many Congolese. He's a former rebel leader and who has assassinated even TV or any dissent in the country. That we are waiting To find ways of trying him. But the current president who was being elected is telling Congolese to actually uh, thank him. But then what is happening for Kabila to stay in power? So an opposition leader has been declared the winner of the election. During that election, we also had legislative elections to vote for our members of parliament. And we also had elections to vote for um, members of parliament for provinces. You know, Congo is run as a federal state, so each pro- we have 26 provinces. Each province has a parliament, like you know, a state parliament in the United States, and then there is a federal one. In the federal parliament, we have 500 seats. In the 500 seats, the Kabila coalition, the, uh, the coalition Of the former uh, president They won 353 seats Which means That they control the parliament So what I've shared With people was Just to show how they rigged the election They want the world To believe that In December when the Congolese People went to vote When they voted for the president They voted for the opposition but when they voted for legislative election They voted for Kabila That does not make sense That's really what these results are showing But why is that Important the, the parliament right? The federal parliament they, What they do is that Besides writing laws Is they nominate the prime minister So the prime minister of the Congo In the current law In the Congo The prime minister will be chosen by the Kabila coalition Which means that Kabila's chosen prime minister Will be controlling the country very soon Now for the provincial government right, The result also came out And as we look at the results right now of the provinces Out of the 26 provinces Kabila, Kabila's coalition control 24 provinces Why is that important again? In the Congo, according to its law, the provincial governments elects the senators. The Congolese people don't vote for the senators. The senators are voted by the state parliament. So it's like thinking about in North Carolina, all the state legislature uh, people elect the two senators for the state, not the people from North Carolina. That's what our constitution Currently says, right. So now, in the election result that came out this weekend, over 90, we have 100 senators, right? Over 90 senators, who are new senators in our parliament, are all from the Kabila coalition. So what the Kabila system wants the world to believe Is that the Congolese came And voted for the opposition For president But for every single position From parliament uh, National parliament, parliament Provincial uh, parliament And senators That the Congolese voted For the Kabila regime To still stay in power While even up until now um, Kabila controls the, um, the military But you don't have to believe me what I'm saying to see how shameful it is. He is no longer the president of the Congo. Kabila still stays in the presidential palace, and the new president is staying in the presidential guest house in the capital city. So all those things have enraged the people. That in the past few days there have been protests because people are realizing that we've really been. Uh, played with by the, the Kabila regime, and they are rising up for it. And that's why I do believe that the fight for self-determination in the Congo is not over. And even if they come out of this electoral crisis, we must stay focused on the Congo, because you and I are talking about the elections and the process that's happening in the country. Last week, Bloomberg spoke about the Congo. When I watched the the video clip of uh, Bloomberg. I was shocked how they talked about my country. They were talking about cobalt, and they were discussing that Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Bill Gates are teaming up to, uh, to create, uh, to search for co- cobalt around the world, and they're going to you know, invest in this company that's going to map out uh, the globe to find out where cobalt is. And one of the analysts during the discussion, she just said in nonchalantly. She said, I'm not understanding why they're doing this search right now. 50% of the world's cobalt is coming from Congo, and cobalt price is very low. So I don't understand why they should go there. And then the other analyst responds, well, they probably don't want to get it from Congo. And they stopped laughing. Me watching that clip, I said to myself, the folks in Wall Street, they know how wealthy Congo is. They're not discussing elections. They're discussing minerals. They're discussing also who's going to find these minerals, or I should say who's going to control these minerals. And these, the people who are going to control it are American billionaires who are hunting for it. And one of the questions that came to my mind was, if today Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates find cobalt in Venezuela, What will they do? Will they advise the U.S. president to invade Venezuela so that the people of Venezuela can be free to benefit from their resources? Bill Gates is not a philanthropist. I don't know what people think he is. Jeff Bezos is definitely not a philanthropist, and everybody should call it a crime how much wealth Jeff Bezos has when you know the condition of Amazon employees. And they discussed the Congo where they never talked about the Congo on the Bloomberg seat. That is what the struggle is While I may provide the political Analysis of the situation Malcolm X was very Clear why Congo was important While he was in Holland He knew it, he said that Congo is a Country that is geostrategic Because of its position On the African continent Is right at the heart of Africa He center He straddles the equator is bordered border by nine African countries. Congo is the only African country with nine bordering nations. What does that mean? Whatever happened in the Congo affects those nine bordering nations which can affect the African continent. That's why Kwame Nkrumah, when he talked about the United States of Africa, he made the capital of the United States of Africa to be Kinshasa because he understood Congo's resources. So for Kwame Nkrumah, from Malcolm X, They all understand that Congo, right in the heart of Africa, is an essential country for the liberation of the Congo. And also our historical ties, that in the United States, one out of five enslaved Africans came from the Congo. That's a fact. That's weak. And there is a reason why they went to the Congo. Because by destroying the Congo kingdom, when the Congo kingdom fell, that's when slavery picked up across the African continent. So to liberate Africa, we have to think about how do we make sure that the Congo is in the hand of Congolese and that its resources benefit the African continent and the African world.
2: Okay, Brother Kabalo, uh, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we have a political analyst and panelists. They have some questions or some comments. You'll like to raise with you. So we're going to take a session break and we'll be right back into the listening audience. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back discussing the state of the Congo at this point in time.
1: Portland. And you come from West...
5: a very well-respected leader who passed away last year. So the accession of Felix Schuster getting into the political scene is really because of his father's name. Uh, He does not have a political history. Um, He he was not present until his father got sick in 2012, uh, after the presidential election of 2011, that little by little, the political parties, uh, knowing that It seems to take it. He was sick and was unable to speak uh, for long hours in front of people. They start using uh, Felix as the image of the party. And of course, after his father uh, died, uh, the party voted for him to be the head of the party called UDPs. So that's one to get a background of why did he even end up in the political scene? He used his father's um, credibility to end up there. But now, why would Kabila choose him? There were a few other opposition leaders. In the, during the election, we had 21 candidates. Um, the person who is perceived to have won, his name is Martin Fayulu, uh, who was a member of Parliament, parliament, fought for the people. There are some challenges with him, too. So I do not want to appear that you know, I'm mentioning his name or this person, and this is the person that we have to support. He has these challenges, but at the end of the day, uh, the people wanted him to win uh, But Kabila wanted to split the population Because his, his strategy really worked, right? Is he had his perceived candidate that he chose His name was Emmanuel Shabari That person did not win Because if he was declared the winner For sure in the Congo in January there would have been an uprising, a revolution in the country, and you would have seen that all over the news because people would have risen up that Kabila's chosen candidate was. So to stop that uprising, he decided to choose, to cut a deal with an opposition leader who is not going to win, right, and say, I will make sure that you become president. As long as you don't change the status quo So by having the declaration Of the election results Showing in a, a, an opposition leader Winning that election What happens is within the opposition And within the masses People are not split right? Because it's creating dissent So you have the supporters of Felix Saying no, no, you won't You know, it's the opposition, so let's move forward. There is peace. And then you have the masses are saying, that does not make sense. We didn't vote for him. How come he's there? So the discussion is shifting from actually seeing that Kabila still has control of the country. And it's hard to mobilize the people as a unified force, especially in January, around the issue. But it's been now two months, that people, after the, uh, the results of the Senate and of the uh, local elections, they're now realizing, oh, my God, he is the president, and Kabila still controls all other institutions. That is why they are more uprising now. So the tactic that Kabila used to connect with uh, Felix was to think of him as a human whose... Uh, Hungry for power because now he drives with you no know, presidential vehicle, he has more money, he forgot that the struggle of the people is not around that, it's about changing the economic system where we are still exploited, changing the economic system where South African uh, financial capital is affecting the Congo, like some of the South African multinationals, DRC. Changing the system where everyone is getting Congress resources. He completely forgot about that because they gave him a title. And those strategies, are just learning from elders in the United States, um, a few elders have helped me like, study snake or Black Panther, uh, the Black Panther Party, about what caused some of uh, the dysfunction of these institutions where you know, a few people handpicked uh, who decided to betray The struggle of the masses While the masses were still clear And the same politics uh, The same politics is being used now By taking a so called opposition leader Giving him the presidency And having the opposition Fight amongst each other While Kabila is still in power And controlling the state
4: Second
5: question um, What's the current situation With you wonder Rwanda and Uganda for the foreseeable future Until the Congolese can control Their affairs are still in the Congo And when we speak about Rwanda and Uganda We always have to connect with the United States uh, Because the power of Rwanda and Uganda Comes from Washington And London It does not come from there Uh, So for example for the electoral process uh, You should know that uh, Rwanda held a meeting At the African Union The president of Rwanda was last year actually The Chairman of the African Union, and he used that position every since he got to protect Joseph Kabila in the Congo that's you no know, one aspect Uganda same thing uh, they have done that you No know, Museveni has been in power since nineteen eighty six and he's uh, expected to run again the president has already announced that while Allowing U.S. military bases To be there you know, Some people do not know The attack on Gaddafi Was using the Entebbe airport In Uganda uh, To launch the attack on Libya And that's the role that they play But to really understand The role of Rwanda and Uganda In the Congo Is connected with the way Belgium In the 1800s Worked with the United States Like Belgium Or King Leopold was the broker Of getting access to Congo Rwanda today Is playing that role The the Chief of staff of the new president His name is Vital Kamere Last week was in Kigali The discussion that they are planning to have Is to find out how Rwanda will provide Water To the Congo from the lake Which is also in the Congo Uh, How Rwanda will provide Electricity to the Congo With the methane gas that's in the lake That's in the Congo And um, making sure That for the past two decades The financial Interests Be it uh, so-called legal And the illegal Pilfering of Congo's resources Is not held accountable Uh, And we still have proxy rebel militias in the East who are not by the government, and mainly because of the agreement that Kabila has had for years with uh, Polkagami. Those militia groups, you know, they go to towns and villages, destroying communities, getting access to resources, while the state does not do anything against these rebels. Uh, Hold them accountable. And what the state will say, well, we are not able to stop them because of the military power. Yet, when Congolese are doing protests, we see whole type of uh, trucks and uh, jeeps and weapons where the police shoot at civilians who are peaceful protesting. So the argument for Congolese up until today is the relationship that Rwanda, Uganda, and the regime of Kabila has is very dubious, and it's not in the interest of the masses. It allows for the continuous filtering of Congo's resources while the country remains in chaos, specifically in the east of the Congo.
2: Anything else, Brother Haki?
4: No, that's it. Thanks.
2: Next, Brother Efti, the mic is
3: yours. Thanks. Brother, brother Kampali, I have a couple of uh, questions and uh, and a comment or observation. Uh, one, uh, from 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 what, from what I read about the history of the Congo, when 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 the Congo was under uh, direct Belgian colonialism, the Belgians did not did did not did not do anything. To build any educational institutions uh, to encourage uh, literacy among the Congolese. Um, my question is, how has that impacted the ability of the Congolese uh, to organize and uh, and uh, and fight against the various uh, capitalist forces that seek to dominate the Congo?
5: That's the first question. Great question. So the, my addition to your comments was, uh, will be that uh, Belgium did not provide the formal education to Congolese to understand the way they operate. But Congolese, or uh, the people from the Congo Kingdom in that region, for centuries had their own writings, own culture, own way of organizing. So while they didn't have that so-called form of Bel- uh, Belgian education, uh, during that time, Congolese rose up against the capitalist uh, status quo. So, for example, Simo Kimbangu in around the 1910s, and, I mean, I did see what he was able to read, but what people don't know is that he was distributing the Black Star... Newspaper in the Congo during that time or the Black Star of uh, Marcus Garvey He was mobilizing people in the, 19, in the late 1900s uh, Not late, I'm sorry, the early 1900s By telling Congolese That the Congo is going to be free He was almost using religious anecdotes To mobilize the population He was so powerful That the Belgian colonialists Put him in prison for Longer than Mandela He was in prison for 30, 30 plus years I think 27 or 30 years but enough For a fact he was in jail for longer Than Mandela but he wasn't the only one The chief of uh, The Tetela His name is Lupungu II In the 1920s Probably I'll say i actually say 1930s um, If I'm correct he sent a personal letter to Albert I of Belgium asking him to leave the Congo. Lupungu, king of the Tetela, and what people should know, Patrice Lumumba was a mutetela. That's a, a tribe. It's a very important thing to know because they resisted. his people resist the Belgian colonialism. You can even find it in uh, comic books that the Belgian hid the resistance of the people Yes, they may now read in French, but they knew how to fight and challenge it. And the cartoon that I'm speaking about is uh, Tintin by Hergé. There is one that's called Tintin in Congo. I encourage everybody listening to the show to go back and read the cartoon. Some people, there is a Congolese elder uh, who helped me understand Congo's history. One day he was talking to me. He was very angry because... There was a movement to remove tinting in Congo from libraries, and the reason they were trying to remove it from libraries is because it was dubbed as racist. Yes, the book is racist. Within it, you will see Congolese with big red lips uh, commenting, they are lazy. I mean, it's a very racist book. But this Congolese elder was shaking when he was talking to me. He was saying, I can't understand why they want to remove this. This book has helped me teach young Congolese our history. In the book, just to give a a short synopsis, right? Tintin is in Congo. And there is a guy named the Lopold Man in the book. Every chance he gets, he's trying to catch Tintin, Right? He's chasing after him. Every time he tries to catch Tintin, he's not able to do it. So I'm removing the narrative of the racist part of the book, just telling that particular story. But he goes around, and every time he's trying to catch him, he's not able to. And the day he was able to get so close to catch Tintin in Congo, a snake comes behind him and eats the lawful man, was about to eat the lawful man, and Tintin saves him. And Tintin tells the Leopold man, now you are my slave. You are going to work for me. And the Leopold man kneels and starts talking. And when the elders the, start breaking it up, they said, do you not know who that story is about? They're talking about the Leopold warriors. Those Leopold warriors fought the Belgians And the Belgians Hate the Leopold warriors Because they were never able to defeat them And if you go to Belgium In the Antwerp The museum, the Terverein museum There is a statue of the Leopold man In the museum When you read the caption On the statue It says that this is a statue oh, First to give you the picture So the Leopold man in the museum is on top of a black person and he has a Lopo skin mask and it looks like he's killing someone. The caption says that the Lopo man was a homicidal black man who killed missionaries and other people. So they're saying it out of context. And the elder say, Kimu, think about this. You are in Kasai, the Belgians are coming to your land. This so called missionary is coming to your land, and you kill him to protect your land, and today they call you homicide or black man. How does that make sense? How come the people who protect their land, right, are called heroes? There will have stories about such and such who fought decades or centuries ago who protected this community. Why us? And I will end by adding. Something that I hope some of you have watched, because they did that in the movie that just came out two years ago in the United States, and I was shocked they did it. They released a movie called Legend of Tarzan. In the movie Legend of Tarzan, they made a fool out of George Washington Williams. They had uh, Samuel Jackson playing George Washington Williams. Every African in America has to be so enraged with that movie. George Washington Williams, a Civil War veteran, left Europe, went to the Congo, saw how Congolese were being killed, and he sent a letter to the U.S. president, I think it was Grover Cleveland at the time, saying that we must stop supporting King Leopold, and what King Leopold was doing in the Congo is crimes against humanity, Right? He is the person, historically, who coined the term crimes against humanity, a black man who went there on his way back to Europe. Unfortunately, he died of malaria, and he's buried in the U.K. right now. So the story of this man, right, one of the most important African born in America, a civil war veteran, was minimized by a small role by Samuel Jackson walking around Tarzan in that movie. But in the movie, at the end of the movie, Tarzan, you see the Leopold Man. Because they had the Leopold Man trying to kill Tarzan because Tarzan killed the son of the Leopold Man. And I watched that fight in the movie because the whole time I'm remembering what the elders had told me. And I'm, I'm watching the movie Tarzan is fighting the Leopold king, and then he's able to defeat him, and he put a knife on his neck, and he's telling the king, I'm not going to kill you. That's not the historical fact in the Congo. The Legend of Tarzan is actually set in the Congo, for those of you who watched it. So for me to know the historical story, not from Western books, right, from the Leopold warriors of today, Whose parents were leopard warriors, who know the history, who passed on the history, would tell me, you've got to go around and tell the world that we've always fought. They did not give us education, but we passed on knowledge to each other. We fought, we resisted, and we continue to resist until we can free our people.
3: Okay, thanks for sharing that. Uh, another question um in terms of um you know the uh you know the, the the organization you had mentioned earlier that most of the about half the congolese population is under 15 i think they are under 18 years old under 18 years old okay right okay under 18 okay and uh so um so what uh, what uh, or organizations or parties are being created to counter uh, the neocolonialism that the Congo is suffering from presently?
5: Right now, the youth that we work with are very clear. Uh, they work with us. We go through training with them as well. They're very clear about what it would take from the country so one of the youth groups that we work with is called Kambois, which is the fourth way. Uh, they've been able to work inside of the Congo and outside how they're able to travel in South Africa and connect with movement in South Africa, uh, particularly some of the unions in South Africa. they've host some um, pan- african training in uh, around Johannesburg and they participate in that. Not only that they've gone to Tanzania meaning with all the young Tanzania activists. They actually spent a week in Tanz- uh, in uh, Zambia after that, in November of last year, where they brought activists from the Congo who are part of the network, and other young African activists to strategize about what they will be doing together during the electoral period. In uh, September, of this year, which was the 60th anniversary of the uh, Pan-African conference, the the 1958 Pan-African conference, the 12 young Congolese who were part of that network of activists were invited to Accra to a Pan-African conference that brought in 500 Africans from across the continent. And they were there sharing the struggle of what they're doing and also seeking support for other Africans to come and support them. So that's at least the Pan-African work they're doing is connecting with others, sharing the struggles. But inside of the country, they actually have a political training program. They do it through a school called André Blouin. And I'm not sure if everyone knows who that person is, but André Blouin, she was a Central African who was sent to Congo by Kwame a Ezekuturei and she was the chief of protocol of Patrice Lumumba. She is actually responsible for writing many of the speeches that Patrice Lumumba had said, actually. Most people do not know that. You know, people who will read his Independence Day speech now realize that she wrote it, projected, it, gave it to him, he added elements to it. Very powerful. Woman. So they started a school called the André Bluand Pan-African School in Kinshasa, which is a one-month school where they bring activists to train them in Pan-Africanism. They also understand the current moment, right? On the short time, they know they have to engage with the masses in helping them see that the electoral process, while we may engage in it, may not seek results. Right? So they, they provide, like, audios that they share on WhatsApp to a network of people across the country with messages. So they have been doing the messages. They have a newspaper that they publish underground. So there are so much more that they're doing. Um, Me me having the uh, it's definitely the privilege of traveling in and out and speaking other languages, uh, especially speaking English, which is again a, a huge privilege. I'm able to see one of the challenges they have. Like right. while I can come and say they're doing this and that and this and that, I always go back to the 1960s. The reason why I go back to the 1960s is because I'm I am still fascinated about how Malcolm X was very clear politically about what was happening in the Congo at that time, and he was in his 30s, right? It was a young African in America, right in, in Harlem, in his 30s, who was clear about what was happening in the Congo. And I've asked that to different elders, and what the answer they gave me, uh, the elders in the United States, what they shared with me was Africans lived in Harlem at the time. So the connections were easy. That, you know, someone from Zimbabwe was going to school uh, to hunt a... Um, City of New York, like many of them were actually studying uh, in the U.S. and there were the connection and the liaison with the people on the continent fighting. That's what's needed right now. Right, the people on the ground are fighting, but they do not have the network in the United States, for example, where people can connect directly with them, so that when the U.S. as they did in January 4, make an announcement. That they're sending 82 combat forces to Gabon to intervene in Congo, people in this country will rise up, and that's what we are trying to do with Friends of the Congo: is connecting people here directly with those who are fighting on the ground to change the Congo.
2: Another Thanks, question, brother. brother.
3: No, that's it. Yeah. Hey,
2: um, my brother. Before we go on the station break, I would like for you to talk a little bit about who is the, um, who are the largest corporations that has the greatest stake in terms of maintaining the present conditions of, of the Congo as relates to controlling minerals and resources in the Congo? In other words, the role of the corporations, who are the key corporations is creating this chaos and continue to back this chaos in the Congo based upon your knowledge?
5: Definitely. We'll look forward to it. Oh, would you like for me to share it now or before the break?
2: No, you share the idea. we're going to the break.
5: Okay. I mean, the, there is a website that Friends of the Congo created called conflictminerals.org. We listed about 85 companies there. But I'll mention a few names. Uh, From the 2001 UN report, it documented a company called Cabot Corporation, which is based out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, a company whose CEO was the former Secretary of Energy of George Bush. Um, They mentioned Vichay, right? And the the list goes on. But the way to now start looking at it in the present time, from 2001 to today, what is the most critical mineral in the Congo is cobalt. And the company to look at now Who, because of the illusion of supply and demand Are creating policies that's causing havoc. Are companies like Toyota They use Congo's Cobalt in their vehicles So anybody who's driving a hybrid car Toyota Prius You should know that the cobalt that's in there Came more than likely from the Congo uh, We have to look at Tesla I just uh, mentioned a moment ago the CEO of uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. They are the biggest beneficiary of Congo's cotton, and they are now set to try to control the world's cobalt. Uh, those are the billionaires to look at. And then directly for companies on the ground digging the minerals it will be companies such as Glencore. Uh, Glencore is a company Uh, registered in Switzerland, uh, which has also offices in South Africa, uh, which is under investigation right now by the Department of Justice because they have been making payment to one of the people uh, who have been uh, helping Kabila.
2: And the list goes on. Okay, on that note, y'all listen to Africa on the Move. We're with our brother from the Congo, Brother Kimbelli. He's giving us an update on the reality of the state of the Congo. We're going to take the station break. When we come back, we will get some final thoughts from him, as well as you have a few more minutes. For those who'd like to call in, please call 323-679-0841 and hit 1. We'll know your last four numbers. Once we make that transition, we hope you go a little bit to talk about Venezuela. We will have with us Sister Shirley Pate that should be joining us shortly. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. How's it going well? We're talking about the state of the Congo. It's a reality, and we'd like for you to join in by dialing three two three six seven six seven nine zero eight four one. Before we went uh, went on our break, we said we'll come back, my brother. And one of the things we'd like for you to do before we close out is to give the people, our listen audience, some ideas or terms of how can we support the movement that you're working with, the brothers and sisters on the ground, and uh, where can we find more information? We recognize that um, when it comes to this question of mass media, Congo is one of the areas that that has deliberately been chosen to make it make it as if it doesn't exist. So how do we overcome this whole reality of this of information on the Congo, and what can the people do to help assist you in your struggle back home, or in our struggle back home, as
5: it relates to our people. Definitely, and thank you for giving us the platform to share the story of the people. And the one important thing that I hope the listeners can do is to come to our website. Uh, The website is friendsofthecongo.org. We are also on social media. Uh, On a daily basis, we post at least one news, uh, one fact about the Congo Online, either on our website Or on our social media page Facebook, Twitter um, is friends of the Congo On Facebook, on Twitter is Congo Friends You'll find us and you'll be updated Um, Then concretely The people on the ground Need, they want to connect With you, they want to build And work and understand the struggle That you are facing here While also sharing their struggle on the ground And by providing us With any Almost supports, uh, be it material, be it financial, and even intellectual, because w- one of the things that help our movement is from learning from elders here, for actually going to Ferguson, learning from the youth of Ferguson how they were organizing, so some of the tactics they've used there, uh, some of the knowledge of organizing that's been in the past is critical uh, to us uh, this juncture, and the youth are organizing political training programmers on the ground, uh, they, they need uh, your support for that. Uh, so any platform that you can create for us, invite us to our uh, your communities. Uh, we would like to come and speak into your community about what is it that we're doing on the ground. And the way to do that, if you go to our friends of the Congo, that our website, you reach out to us, say, hey, I would like you all to come to my community, uh, that would be great. Right? Creating a... Uh, Net- a support network in your city The community in Atlanta We went there, we've been working with them For a- almost 10 years now Went there, spoke to the community And they started the Friends of the Congo Chapter In Atlanta And they've been very active uh, There And you know, many of us know what uh, Baba elombe Brass did We're keeping the story of Lumumba uh, In New York, in the United States alive And we need more people to do that Connect with us, come to our website, bring us to your community, provide support to our struggle. And that's what we need uh, at this juncture uh, to help those on the ground who are fighting for change.
2: You know, Brother Cabrera, we know what the people are fighting against, but can you give us a sense of what we're really fighting for? Where does this whole thing fit in, the scheme fit in, when it comes to a future Congo, we want to look at what? Are we in agreement that for African people to be free, they must, you know, overthrow and get rid of these capitalist and privileged systems, I mean, socialism is the solution to our people's problems. And for Africa, you must look and address the issue of pan-Africanism in terms of dealing with all the issues that affect Africa and African people at home and abroad. So, give our people sense from your understanding, a future of a Congo in the hands of the people, what would it look like and what path would it take?
5: A free and liberated Congo, these lands with the size of Western Europe, but with all minerals known to man, we have diamond, gold, uh, oil, copper, zinc, we have all that wealth. If Congo is free tomorrow, the Congo River will be able to provide electricity to the entire African continent, southern Europe, and have a little bit left of the Middle East. If Congo is free tomorrow, Congo today has the agricultural capacity to feed the entire world until 2050 when the world's population is 9 billion people. If Congo is free today, the water that we have in the Congo will be able to help the African continent. Why? Because Congo today holds 40% of the remnant freshwater reserve on the African continent. The Congo forest, who transformed the discussion around climate change because Congo is the second largest rainforest after the Amazon, and then to the Congolese people themselves. It is not by accident that the Portuguese had the plan to destroy the Congo Kingdom. The destruction of the Congo Kingdom created a power vacuum For the rise up of slavery across the African continent But we have an opportunity to change that narrative about the current struggle in the Congo So when I say that Congo's population is under the age of 18 And the majority are Congolese women I'm seeing that as a huge opportunity This is the engine that will transform the African continent Imagine a youth population Fighting and transforming the country They have the energy, they have the hope They know they can succeed right? And there will be That force that can transform the African continent That is the, uh, the Congo that How Patrice Lumumba saw it He was clear that the, With the Congolese If Congo is back in the Hand of the Congolese it will not just transform Congo, it will transform Africa. And that was the Pan-African vision that came out of the 1958 Pan-African Conference. That is the vision that many are still carrying from Kwame Nkrumah's speeches and writings about the heart of Africa. How can we exploit our own resources and use the profit of that resource to transform the continent? I'm just going to add one more element. Because I was just in Venezuela I spent two weeks there In uh, February and beginning of March And I went there as part of a Solidarity visit to Venezuela I can tell you I was very angry To know that To see what's possible With one mineral I'm not talking about Two, five right? With one mineral Oil Hugo Chavez was able to take the profit of the exploitation of the resources and he didn't do pragma he didn't do just like a theoretical socialism, he did pragmatic socialism. When I was in Caracas, I went into the subway system, I took the train. He was free. I could go anywhere in Caracas. I saw the housing that he built for the people. So the people saw that With all profits, we can have free housing. With all profit, we can have food. I saw the food distribution. I saw the subway. So I saw with one mineral what Hugo Chavez could do. Now, as the young Congolese, do you think I was dreaming when I was there? Of course. Because I told myself, but we have everything in Congo. We don't just have oil. We do have oil, but we have diamonds. So imagine that wealth. If that wealth is in the hands of Africans, what will happen to the material condition of the people? The people will not go hungry. The people will have electricity. The people will have homes. The people will be able to go to education for free like they are doing right now in Venezuela. That we can transform, and that's why I understand why they are attacking Venezuela. So they can tell us this doesn't work. When I was there, I saw that it works, and he inspires me to say, if Congo is free, Africa will be free. If Congo is free, African people will be able to enjoy the wealth of the Congo and transform their homes. If Congo is free, that word is coming very soon. I'm already ready for it. And that's why I'm seeking support for all this, because I know what's possible. I saw what's possible, and we'll make it happen in the Congo.
2: My brother, we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program. When you go back home, would you please share with our brothers and sisters and let them know that they are not alone. We are we are in lockstep with them, and our struggle is won, and victory is certain.
5: Indeed, victory is certain.
2: All right. Thank you. I would like to make one quick note before we go to this break and take a we'll break on Sister Shirley. We will continue the discussion. We're going to talk about Venezuela and its relationship with what's going on today and how it's impacting our world and others. But before we take this break, I would like to share with this listening audience concerning this particular radio program, I find something of very interest, and I'd like to share this with you. On this particular show, on my keyboard, as we um, continue to do the show, I have a special message that has, has popped up on my screen the whole time that I've never seen before. And I find really interesting of the timing of it, and I would just like to read to you in terms of what it states. It says, at this time, we are working on a delay for live shows processing. Please stay tuned as we work to have these become available. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I thought I'd put that out there to let you know in terms of when we talk about free press, if you truly want to have a free press and be able to dictate the kind of information that you want to dictate, you're better on your own. So, again, this is what the message is. We're going to take a break, then we'll come back. We'll come back with our sister, Shirley. But the message says that this time we are working on a delay for live shows, proce- shows processing. Please stay tuned as we work to have these become available. So anyway, audience, we're in the heat. We take the heat. we're in the seat. We we'll take the heat as we define it. We're gonna stand behind it. We're gonna take this break and we'll be back with Sister Shirley. We're gonna talk a little bit about Venezuela. You are listening to Africa on the Moon.
1: That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and love. An important line there, I'm all about peace and love. Yes. A okay. Terror. They're calling him a terrorist. Terror. Terror. Okay, one nation in the world has over a 1,000 military bases. Can you guess who? It's, um, oh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that have... That oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. There you go. <laughs> okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Mm-hmm. Bust a beat for me. What? All right, sure. <laughs>
0: Back is a racist got the strip
1: was getting Bomb Obama didn't say shit
5: After you divorce yourself From the right wing Propaganda campaign It's all simple and plain America can stand the game Your president got an African name Now who you gon' blame When they dropped the bombs Out of them planes Using depleted uranium, Babies looking like two-headed aliens Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal Ain't nothing subliminal to it That's how they do it See their game, they run Give a fuck if he's cutting Articulate and handsome Afghanistan help by the hand of this black man, neo-colonial puppet White power with a black face, he said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of disguise, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Where the and Fred and Mark talk When they do, when the dog will come out in the light Like a WikiLeaks site, so I guess the crew was right Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding In the immortal words, I'm off and gate This ain't living Obama didn't say shoot O-B-A-M-A You ain't fooling everyone I see the
1: games you play You B.I.P. at the B.I.C. And we know that's the code name The CIA Ay-ay-ay. The same way your cameras are watching That's are watching you Think we're easy to control You ain't got a clue Revolution's on the way Let's see what you're gonna do You're gonna send the truth You're gonna drop the news See it's not where you're from It's where you're right You're sitting in the white house So oh, who cares if he's black The is told you Still out there in Iraq the nigga fresh off the stage shit you burn burning hell even Michelle was warming
5: I the racist. got the was getting obama didn't say shit yeah. the
1: Obama, the bomber getting ready for Syria. First black president, the masses were hungry, but the same president just formed an African country like.
2: Obama, we welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're going to now make our transition from the Congo to Venezuela. And to help us make this transition, we'd like to bring in our sister Shirley Pate. She is working with an organization that is doing work around Venezuela, and we're going to give her the opportunity to share with us maybe some updates in the current status of what's going on in Venezuela and how it may be impacting us. Sister Shirley, welcome to Africa on the Move.
6: Thank you, Brother Lee. Appreciate it very much. Uh, first of all, revolutionary okay. greetings to all. And um, what I'm going to do here, I'm going to just try to, to do it fairly quickly. Is to do talk for so, about just
2: so, take your time, just take your time, do it right. Okay, we got time. Right. Okay, go ahead. don't do okay. Give the people what deserve.
6: Okay, all right, okay. All all yours right. talk to us about Venezuela. Okay, all right. Um, I'm going to talk for probably about a minute or two about the uh march in Washington uh yesterday, okay. the hands off Venezuela march. Then I'm going to talk about some uh boiling just beneath the surface, legislation from Congress that's coming up. And then after that, there are two incredible articles that have come out within about the last 48 hours, which I think are are worth uh, everybody reading, if you can, and certainly myself and another person that I work with in our group. We're going to start writing some analysis of these articles, and in some cases, responses to them. So, okay. All right, well, the march uh, yesterday, uh, first of all, the speakers were just excellent. Uh, And this really kept the mood of the attendees on, on high. And there was a lot of enthusiasm that was demonstrated. I'll have to tell you, I was a bit surprised at the low turnout Of people for this march, I um, thought that some, you know, they'd all been saying, "Well, we're going to have thousands of people here," and in my observation, maybe there were six to eight hundred people that were at this. But still, everybody uh, spoke with loud voices and were determined. Um, Okay, so that is the the march. Now, the thing that I think that Venezuela has done, uh, I guess it was about three days ago, that I think is a really clever idea. Maduro has decided to put the two million strong civilian militia with the armed forces to fan out throughout the entire country to more or less keep an eye out for future attacks on the infrastructure, but most especially they are concerned about the water. And I think this is very good that the civilian and the military are going to be together on this. And also, if, if, if those two entities are fanned out throughout the country, it also gives them the opportunity to observe things and maybe stop things before they happen. So I think it was a, a really good decision that Maduro made on that. Um, now, let's see. Oh, I would just want to talk about a, two, a couple of congressional things. Um, Ro Khanna, who is from um, a congressional district just south of San Francisco, uh, put together a um, a Dear Colleague letter. On Venezuela and he sent it around and he got about 14 or 15 signatures on it as I recall but the problem is it was a very schizophrenic letter the first um, paragraph was actually a paragraph I could agree with and thought was a good one the very next (coughs) paragraph was (coughs) Absolutely vile, vicious attack on Maduro and the Bolivarian government. And that's how it went throughout the entire thing. Obviously, what's happening is he had to appease those people who are against the U.S. intervention, but they want to slap Venezuela, have the opportunity to slap Venezuela around. But the problem is the end result of the letter is, uh, I don't know, it feels very tainted. Um, So I think we're going to have to kind of keep an eye on that in the future because with all the lies that they told in that letter, that's just the kind of stuff that allowed the United States to roll in there. So, all right, the next item is... um, (coughs) There's a House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, and there are three members of it who are leading uh, a piece of legislation each, all from the state of Florida. One of them is Donna Shalala, who uh, her legislation uh, tries to uh, get a ban on all riot equipment and And gas Going to Venezuela Um, Oh I forgot her name now The woman from The blonde headed woman from um, Oh god From Florida And uh, been very helpful for the Cubans as well I'm sorry (laughs) I don't have it Anyway What she's worried about And has put into a piece of, of legislation Is that she wants the US government To investigate Exactly what it is that Russia is doing in Venezuela and um on the uh on the third one uh there were just a variety- i remember just a variety of things that they were trying to get banned so that so that Venezuela could not buy them so these things are just coming forward, and it is thought that probably as early as tomorrow or the next day That these would be probably voted on altogether And that they would pass But we just see once again the Congress is Active in a way that we wish they weren't um, So um, now there is a, also a congressman by the name of Cicilline and he has a piece of legislation that is, uh, I think it's HR 1004. It is that legislation that makes it that against the law to invade Venezuela. So uh, you might might be interested in going on Congressman Cicilline's site just to kind of see what he's got there. But at least that's the one bit of good news. Uh, From Capitol Hill Um, I don't know whether you all saw, saw it or not But the New York Times this morning Wrote just an incredible article Essentially saying that Cuban doctors were forced To not give aid to Venezuelans Because Maduro had told them that if they if the, if these people coming in weren't supporting him that they shouldn't get the aid. It's one of the more ridiculous articles I've read in a long time. It's very lengthy, but this thing just shows you how far uh that they will go with the um propaganda um, now the second item is a uh, It's in Consortium News, and we're going to get both of these up on our website, and I'll give you that information in just a minute. But the second one is about an expose done by Max Blumenthal about the use by the National Endowment for Democracy, the use of a Serbian group, to come up with a plan for destabilization of Florida, Florida, listen to me, Venezuela, and um, this plan was put together back in 2010. And the plan specifically says that at the heart of the regime change idea is the uh, cutting off or at I should say, electricity blackouts. And it appears that that particular aspect of the plan was obviously used within the last week in Venezuela. Um, I think there's a lot more to this uh, use of of the Serbian guys and actually some Eastern European guys that uh, myself and uh, my uh, friend, we're going to write something on because the these Serbian guys ended up in Bolivia years ago and at the time when we found out where they were from we were going, where, you know, why are these guys here? I think what we found is that it's the National Education, I mean National Endowment for Democracy that ha, that's employing these people. So, we'll try to get a little more uh, information On that and um, that it will will be in our website and speaking of our website I'd like to give you all the information where you can find us Um, if you would I think the best thing to do is just simply Google the name of our group because the URL which I am responsible for having screwed up (laughs) is very awkward to use so just uh, Google D.C. Venezuela Action Network. And if you scroll, when you get there, if you scroll down to the right-hand side, you'll see a box. And if you wish to get um, posts as they come, you can just put your email address into that section. And every time we post something, you all will get it immediately. So... All right.
2: I think that's probably it, Brother Lee. Okay. Still, Sister Shirley, we will talk a few more minutes on Venezuela. We will bring in our panelists. Brother Haki, mm-hmm. as we talk about the state of being, are there any things maybe came to mind that you have read across or seen that you'd like to share with our listening audience as it relates to the ongoing saga of Venezuela and U.S. attempt to um, overthrow its government and stage a coup?
1: Cool? Well, yeah.
2: Well, I'm be... oh, oh, sorry, Brother Hackey. I'm sorry, Brother Hackey, We'll come
4: back to you. Go ahead, Brother hacky I'm Hockey. sorry. <laughs> okay. Oh, <All right>, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is interesting, the sister raised a question in terms of Serbian involvement in terms of US foreign policy. And historically the US have always used foreign nationals in terms of carrying out illicit policies. It's not very interesting because this whole notion in terms of consciousness versus unconsciousness is key in terms of deciding which nations they uh, approach, and what individuals they use in terms of current U.S. foreign policy. So internally, when we look at the U.S. in terms of, particularly when we talk about this question of class, and we look at all these black conservatives, it's very, very interesting, you know, that their voices get amplified throughout the world. So they seem to serve a, a, a geopolitical uh, interest of imperialist powers. not necessarily understand that. But, uh, but the mere fact that the U.S. involves these foreign nationals, speaks volumes in terms of their willingness to engage in complicity, uh, duplicity and to undermine the rights of human beings throughout the globe. Uh, but okay. my question, to the, sister, to the sister, is, is this: um, Could you draw some analysis between, uh, what, in fact, injustices inflicted upon Venezuela versus the, the injustices inflicted upon the people here in America? Because I, I think a lot of times people don't get the correlation between uh, the, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy in terms of how it impacts us nationally. So I think if we could draw that parallel, to make people understand clearly, you know, that those kind of injustices inflicted upon Venezuela are soon to be visited by people right here in America. But I don't think people understand mm-hmm. that because of the lack of understanding history. But could you draw some parallels for their the audience,
6: please? I will try to do that. Um, first of all, uh, the, the knowledge that Americans have about Venezuela is very bumpy. And, uh, but, but I, first of all, I, let me just back up to Venezuela. I see, the thing I'm most worried about is, is that the, that the invasion hangs around the edges for months and months and months. And that, you know, costs money for Venezuela. I mean, that. So it's expensive to have to deal with that issue, but I think that the uh i quite quite frankly i see the i see analogies from a racial aspect regarding Venezuela and the states uh, the 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 racial problems in venezuela are bad and they're bad in many places around the world and including in sister states in in uh, in Latin America but i think that this is it's like a divisive knife in my opinion that cuts through Venezuela and the United States and um i think both both countries have dealt with that in in certain ways um, but I think it's the thing That w- that poses the biggest danger To the success Of the two countries
2: Okay, Brother Anthony Comment questions Anything you'd like to share with this audience As it relates to the ongoing Issue of U.S. and Venezuela Relations
3: Yes um, Yes I want to raise the issue of the uh, fact that uh, that this could be broader than the conflict between the U.S. and Venezuela. And mm-hmm. it has uh, regional implications, uh, which mm-hmm. I would like you to touch on somewhat, Shirley, if you could, mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. you're also active and work in support of uh, Haiti. Uh, from uh-huh. what I read uh the, the 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 masses of the people in Haiti are rising up against the current administration mm-hmm. uh, uh uh in Haiti not mm-hmm. only because of the of political uh, corruption but also because mm-hmm. of um Haiti's uh betrayal of uh, of uh, Venezuela at um uh, At the Uh OAS meeting that took place earlier this year In Mm -hmm. which uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic Sided with the U.S. In Mm -hmm. terms of Mm -hmm. its, uh, you know, Attempt to overthrow the PSUV government in Venezuela Now, Mm -hmm. the significance Mm -hmm. of that is that That went against the interests of the masses Of the Haitian people who've benefited Mm -hmm from a special program that Venezuela had had mm-hmm. arranged uh, about fifteen years ago if uh mm-hmm. you know my dates might be off a little bit. Uh that gave uh you know a credit to Haiti uh mm-hmm. you know uh for for their oil purchases from Venezuela if they uh, if they uh allocated uh that discount On uh, social programs And what ended Mm -hmm. up happening Was that some of the presidential Administrations in Haiti uh, Mm -hmm. You know Misused those funds And Mm -hmm. uh, the long and short Of it is that The agreement had ended About 2017 I think But the Mm -hmm. people in Haiti Are very upset Over the position that the Government took as Mm Vis-a-vis Venezuela and I raised mm-hmm. that as one example of the regional implications. So that if the U.S. does choose to invade Venezuela, it could have uh, it could have re- uh, regional implications beyond Venezuela. Mm-hmm,
6: mm-hmm. Exactly. I, you know, I I think if if you take what I'm saying is I'm seeing the United States. Stick a knife and twist it in Venezuela And then turn around and punch in Cuba They're doing a twofer for everything now Cuba is related to Venezuela Venezuela is related to Cuba That And that's dangerous That's, That's a real dangerous thing The other thing is That Haiti The What they've had to go through With corrupt, vicious Fascist leaders is they, they don't get in, they don't get anything and never have they don't get uh, universal schooling or anything else. I mean it's just a hell of a damn place to try to make it and grow up and live. And I am kind of watching the U.S. as they're trying to uh, discredit Venezuela in any way it can. I'm watching it with what is going on with Cuba, and I believe that's going to slide over to, to Haiti a little bit also. The other thing is that I understand that in Haiti, and I I knew it was going to happen, I understand that slipping through the, <laughs> they're slipping through the, the uh, maybe I should say the palm trees, but anyway, they have had... Um, uh, mercenaries Coming onto the island And I think The, the uh, press got a, got a hold Of that information pretty quickly And they wrote about it But Things are getting more and more And more dangerous for Haitians Each day If the U.S. Decides To do a, uh, a Full court press I have big concerns about what might happen in Haiti.
2: Well, panelists, we run out of time. What we're going to have to do, we will continue discussion next week, a part two on the state of being. And I'd like to hear each one of you all thought, final thoughts and final words for tonight. We'll start out with your sister, Shirley.
6: Uh, I, my final word is, I, I was very lucky yesterday. I had a visit from Lee uh, Robinson, and I also had a visit from Professor Holmes. And we discussed doing taking Venezuela on the road. In other words, uh, having gatherings, perhaps some at uh, universities, uh, some at even libraries, but to begin to bring Venezuela and the truth about Venezuela to the people. And we had a very good discussion yesterday, and I just wanted to say I appreciate it very much, and I look forward to working with you.
2: And for people who like to maybe invite you to their community and your organization or church or school, how can they get in contact with you and your organization, Sister Shirley?
6: Okay, all right. Um, let, I think the best way is uh, is by email, and but I'm gonna I may be changing it again in about three months. But let me just give you my. It's uh, guineaoye at gmail dot com, and that's of course Guinea, G U I. I don't think I need to spell it to this group, but anyway, G U I, N E A O Y E. At gmail.com And I'll be happy to give you my phone number as well It's uh,
2: 202-277-8252 Alright, thank you sister for your contribution to today's program And your daily work for Advancing Humanity We next will go to Brother High Key. Brother Haki. you'll find the thoughts for tonight
4: yeah, first let we just mention African american Association. We're doing this travel, <laughs> is, is will to travel and world to liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, San Diego de Cuba, and Havana. This trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. And for more information, contact us at 202 714 9435 or they can uh, reach us at the post office box at PO Box 4433. Richmond, VA, and we encourage people to firsthand go to Cuba and see for themselves exactly why Cuba is such a model and a, an example for the world to emulate. And having said that, brother Africa, well, that's just like as usual, always encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, one of the things that we're very clear, and I read the article recently where they're talking about um, the uh, indebtedness that exists in society. And clearly no amount of gains perpetuated by the uh, banks, the central banks in particular, is going to do anything to remedy this problem. This problem is irredeemable, and which means that uh, the government has to a hard choice in terms of how to get rid of a lot of people it no longer needs, no desire. So we got a real challenge before us. And uh, in, in conclusion, I just say, have a good night.
2: Thank you as well, Brother Hockey, for your contribution to today's program. And we go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. And also, Brother Anthony, your organization, the A A P. R. P. G. C. has written an excellent paper on why sisters and brothers around the world should come to the age of Venezuela. Can you share with our people how can they read it? Read or find a document as well. Your final thoughts and how can they also read or find the document? As related to solidarity
3: with Israel. Okay, certainly, they can find that document by going to our website, which is www.a-aprp-gc.org, and they can also find out some other information about the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC, such as our history, program, and ideology. Also, uh, for my final fo- thought for tonight is that we must uh, you, we must study our history, our, and 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 do the appropriate research and join an organization that is working for people's liberation. It is more important today than ever for us to be organized.
2: thank you, Airman well for your contribution to you. For today's program, all of our participants, our listening audience, and our special guests. Like always, Africa on the Move is a program dedicated to the uplifting of our people, as well as humanity. We come to seek to speak truth to power, and to provide you with information that you can use as a tool for liberation. Until next time, like always, remember: let's strive to go forward, ever backwards never. And for African people, remember. The solution to your daily, problem, your daily problems around the world is pan-Africanism. Fight for pan-Africanism is the key. It will set our African free. So until next time, next week, same time, same place, we will leave you with Mother Africa and Lesson for the Sixties by Kwame T. Real Folly. So we'll see you next week. Forever.
7: Welcome, we have been allotted uh, half an hour and uh, within this half an hour we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the early, late 50s. In the late 50s based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960 within 15 short years of this conference over 230 million Africans were to gain independence swiftly following in that wake the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement and of course the United States of America itself beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc, etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to rest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate in fact that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here at least Africans can vote. In America they could not. One of the lessons then that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive and spontaneous Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized The lessons then must be clear Human beings like animals of the lower form have instincts Human beings unlike animals of the lower form have the ability to think and reason The lesson then must be clear all of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60's <clears throat> Of course the capitalist system lies all the time Some people think it lies some of the time But it lies all of the time And in lying it has an attempt to make us think That in the 60's we were an organized people And everything was alright We were not organized We were mobilised people Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60's The lessons must be clear Immobilized people really And instinctive people And spontaneous people who struggle Struggle like animals Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action. Even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day they all come to the meeting. (laughs) And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come quickly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up those africans once provoked come out striking wildly as they do in miami the police retreats give them some concessions they sit down and then the police comes back with more repression. none of the gains made by a by mobilized people can be maintained it was only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle indeed the gains made by the sixties since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization have not been used by the people but in fact used by the enemy against the people it is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country the history is not the same entirely different from everybody else all those who came here came here expecting a better life an African put on a slave ship from Africa know he was coming to hell it's a fact Consequently the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history And think that he came on the Mayflower (laughs) This aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth All individual advancements are based on mass struggle This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cents store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood in order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else they must shed their blood in order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here they must shed their blood consequently any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle thus that position does not belong to the individual African it belongs to the people failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people consequently when we come to correct the sixties and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who once having made gains are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, To transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is scared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. <laughs> Students, we say, have the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students, then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student, or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society, or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values, connected with the masses, always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students joined with the masses of the people came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students declare here their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's mobilize people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution. And we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system based on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Thus that seat belongs to the people, the knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The students of the eighties going into the nineties have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spot these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass, so long ago, told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that It is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s of course made many errors with coalitions. Here we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white men. Well, you know, us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populists, we did work for the populists. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes Tilden compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples is to be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have, everywhere, played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of. The labor union. We had interests with the church groups. All of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest in your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be. Uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the sixties, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one, hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for for struggles, all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there is no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we are held in such contempt by the Democratic Party because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there with one fighting against the other simply because we have not organized ourselves properly it is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us (coughs) coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are what then are the relevancy for the nineties? revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world this is clear And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, The very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It is a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher. But these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor the rising consciousness of the people the enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece the mass media to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing as if it stopped this is stupidity the consciousness of the people must forever grow and some of us become confused not even understanding how it manifests itself the other day having a discussion with an elderly man he came to say to me Kwame Ture you're always up on the college campus with our students I said oh yes I work with them all the time he said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were. Our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King. They know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Not as he was He went on the back of the door (laughs) Once history is made It cannot be unmade The job of the enemy Is to push the people back Once we broke out of slavery They did everything possible To push us back into slavery No Sharecropping yes But not slavery Since the 60s They've been doing everything else To push us back But once a man or a woman Has learned something As Sigmund Freud Has scientifically demonstrated It never leaves the mind Even if he thinks He's forgotten it and once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the sixties must be un- must you must understood are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here, the rising level of political consciousness. If you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today the right wing is not with the government, it's against the government, it's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government, the possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for, that's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus, they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop hopping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes, yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons, then, must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point (laughs) then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly, you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. (laughs) Of Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the sixties, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s. The class struggle in the African revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
1: (laughs)